Welcome to Clinical Lab Chat, part of the MedCore Podcast Network. I'm Chris Wolski, Director of Business Intelligence for CLP, and today I'll be speaking with Ronald Blum about the challenge of reimbursement. With over 25 years of experience in clinical laboratories, diagnostics, and clinical trials, Dr. Blum has helped companies drive growth, expand into new markets, and increase profitability and valuation. He has been instrumental in bringing to market hundreds of new and enhanced assays and has served in senior leadership roles at major clinical laboratories and diagnostic companies. Dr. Blum has lectured internationally on the latest developments in personalized medicine, biotechnology, and laboratory science and has published extensively. He also currently serves as VP of Marketing for Mira DX, a genomics oncology laboratory focused on personalizing cancer treatment options, and is Chief Executive Officer for Blum and Associates Consulting, LLC. He is also, uh, I'm happy to say, had a long uh, association with CLP, both as a contributor and as a member of our editorial advisory board some thoughts here as we we get into this, uh, Ron. I I think it's safe to say that clinical laboratories have really been in the spotlight in the best possible way uh, during the past couple of years. Um, We've all learned uh, how important uh, testing is in the face of a pandemic, and we are learning the human and social cost of missing important regular diagnostic testing. I think there were a couple of uh, studies that just came out this week uh, talking about uh, missed cancer uh, screening and and what the cost has been uh, both um, personally and and to the healthcare enterprise as a whole. Uh, but so if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, it's been the acknowledgement I think uh, of the critical role of the clinical laboratory in the entire uh, healthcare continuum. However. We live in a profit-driven healthcare system, and that acknowledgement isn't enough to function. Labs have to be economically viable, and that means in most cases being reimbursed by payers for the work they do. So what we're going to be talking with, with Ron today is the challenges of reimbursement and how that's uh, affecting uh, and will be affecting clinical labs in the foreseeable future. And uh, I'm hoping that Ron, you'll be able to give us some practical advice about how lab managers and administrators can ensure that they're getting reimbursed fairly and ensuring that patients have access to life-saving diagnostic tests, which is another uh, big um, big issue that's uh, come up during uh, the last few few months. There was a great uh, piece in The Lancet uh, about that. So uh, we can talk a little bit about that too. So CLP ran an article last year that uh, pointedly discussed how uh, critical labs were in keeping hospital systems afloat during the pandemic. So, Ron, how was this economic situation different than the pre-pandemic days? And more importantly, do you see that in the post-pandemic clinical lab, uh, will they remain a a critical revenue stream? Uh, Will that continue on, in other words? Right. Well, first, Chris, uh, Great to uh, uh, to be talking with you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And you know, of course, first and foremost, I'm not an expert in in laboratory reimbursement, but sure. I think um, because I've been in the lab industry a long time, I think I can. I, I'm very happy to share my own perspective. And so, I think you touched on a couple things in in your intro, and I and I think one of the most important things that I've sort of taken away and what I've seen over the 
the past number of years is the public's and the government's perception of the lab industry. And I think it's really important to understand that and sort of what it was before the pandemic and, and kind of how it, how it was, has been through the pandemic and now as we emerge from that. And I think really sort of before the pandemic, I think most people's perception of the lab industry came from really sort of two different sources. One was uh, when somebody would go to get their blood drawn, say at a, at a, a patient service center, they would go in, um, they'd get their blood drawn, um, they would get the results back through their doctor, or sometimes they could go online um, through a portal, get the results. And for the most part, it would be essentially a printout of a, a number of different analytes with uh, different uh, reference ranges and then an actual numeric value. And I think the perception of that is that, oh, most lab tests or these lab tests are run on fully automated kinds of instruments. There's there's not much to it. It doesn't really cost a lot. It's very fast. It's it's very efficient. And so I think their perception is that everything is very automated and therefore not necessarily of high value. They don't understand right. sort of everything that goes on behind the scenes. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and then I think secondly, people's perception, unfortunately, also has been on a negative basis from Theranos, you know, the 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 disastrous perception that, um, that that came out from, you know, unfortunately, somebody who really was taking advantage of the system. And I think that's people's perception for the most part. Right. Um, if, you know, we're, we're very, you, you know, lucky to be in the lab industry and have a very different perspective because we really understand that what may look simple on the surface it's simple because we spend a lot of effort to get to that point and it's very expensive to get to that point. And so I think for years, the public's perception of the lab industry has really suffered. They, they have sort of thought of it as something that does not have very much value. And a lot of legislation also has gone in that direction. And we'll, we'll talk about this in, in a little while, um, you know, huge cuts proposed to, the lab industry, um, because it's really been kind of a, a, a convenient target. And um, I think it's it's important to, to keep in mind that in the sort of the old adage that 70% of the decisions that doctors make are based on lab testing, yet the testing itself only accounts for about one to 3% of the total healthcare budget. So it's extremely um, of high value and when you look at that, it's it's uh, it's amazing that we've been such a target for continued uh, cuts to reimbursement. But I think what the the pandemic has really done is that <clears throat> because there was this huge need for immediate lab testing on a scale that has never been seen before, um, the laboratory industry really stepped up in a major way and 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 in really a phenomenal way and was able to develop. A whole host of different kinds of assays to immediately be able to diagnose COVID very rapidly and on and, and on a gigantic scale, uh, and to be able to have those results reported out very quickly because that's so important. And mm -hmm. so you, I think that has really shined a a, a really bright light uh, on the lab industry that we as a whole were able to step up to this challenge, 
to create these amazing tests and to provide diagnostic answers that really were the basis for getting through COVID. I mean, everything that we did was essentially based on, you know, who was sick, who who was basically diagnosed uh, positive uh, for COVID. And then that really, from that was everything else was was based on that. And so that really, I think, has impacted people's perception. And I think in a very positive way. Right. Um, and I think what, what's happening now, too, is uh, unfortunately, during COVID, there was such fear of getting sick. And I think um, so much of the healthcare system really was so focused on treating COVID and preventing COVID and uh, and and not uh, focusing on continuing traditional care um, that a lot of people, you mentioned about the um, cancer rates. And there was mm-hmm. an article in Lancet uh, right. where, you know, they estimate, you know, estimated about 16% increase in colorectal cancer deaths are now expected, um, as well as about 9% increase in for breast cancer, 5% for lung cancer, 6% for esophageal cancer, because people weren't going in for screenings uh, for a variety of reasons. So I think, um, you know, the there have been good things and bad things that have have come out of this. Clearly, coming out of the pandemic, <clears throat> there is going to be a uh, I, I think a real resurgence, a real need for for lab testing, and yeah. um, I think there are now a lot more opportunities. I think telemedicine has really that's another area of medicine that has really um, taken a, a major foothold in this uh, because of this and has really sort of forced uh, the whole healthcare system to take notice. And I think that's been a very positive thing to increase access to physicians, to healthcare uh, for testing. And so I think, you know, we're going to see a a huge um, demand for testing um, as we continue to come out of the pandemic. Right. Well, I mean, you you brought up a really interesting uh, point and, in terms of, you know, I mentioned that article that uh, was written uh, that we we uh, po- we posted last year about how testing uh, lab- labs really kept a lot of hospitals afloat. But I think one of the things that you, the one point you just made, which I think is really important, but I think even more fundamental maybe to our conversation in terms of reimbursement, is a term you use, undervalued. And I think that I'm wondering if with all the home tests that are starting to come out, people are starting to see the value in a more visceral sort of way in, in that they're doing the test. They, they turn it into a lab or, or to a Dropbox or, or, or what have you, and they're getting those answers directly. So it isn't, there isn't this, this isn't being mediated in some sort of way. There's a more of a direct connection. And I'm wondering if, if that's that's part of it uh, as well, that maybe what one thing that'll come out of this and all the home testing that's coming out of this for everything, not just COVID, but a, a number of other tests, is that individuals will start to value it and that will put, pre- it'll, it'll be an upward pressure. So you have the downward pressure, you know, maybe mid-level upward pressure from healthcare, the healthcare enterprise uh, and doctors and labs 
to legislators and others, but maybe even further down, you have more upward pressure from people like you and me who are just do, doing our tests tests at home. I mean, do you think that that will uh, that will help to value raise that value of, of tests? Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. It's people having that direct experience with uh, going out purchasing a testing kit, coming home, seeing, you know, going through the process. And I'm sure I, I've done it and I'm sure you've done it as sure. well. You know, the, the home COVID tests and things. And, right. each, and I've done a series of them and they show even, even something for home use is pretty complicated. It can, you know, where you have to follow the instructions, you have to sometimes log on to, you know, have the phone, uh, have it linked up. You've got to, uh, follow the instructions very carefully to make sure that you're pouring in a certain amount of the reagent in the certain spots. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's generally very simple, but I think for somebody who's never really done this, it shows, this is just one example of things. And I think it, but it's good because people now have a much, they're much more familiar with terminology. They under, you know, the whole idea of PCR, antigen testing. I mean, these terms were never, in the vernacular. Um, And so now people really are becoming much more savvy, I think, understanding this. And I think the next level is there can be these sort of home tests that can be done, performed at home, where you get the results, point of care in a matter of 15 minutes. Then there's sort of the next level where you have to have the tests, uh, things like um, the Cologuard that Exact Sciences has, where you uh, for the stool test that then checks for colorectal cancer, where you collect the specimen at home, you then send it in and you get the analysis done at the laboratory with the report. And I think that also familiarizes people a lot more with what's going on in the, in the industry. And as we start to continue to develop the technologies and innovation in lab testing, where we have these much more complex tests that need to be performed in the laboratory, I think people will appreciate them more and realize the value that goes into these things because the information they're providing is so is so critical and is different from what they've experienced before. Right. Uh, we talked a little bit before, and I think this leads into our next topic I'd like to talk a little bit about. Uh, so in my intro and what we're talking about here is kind of the silver, you know, you know, I, I hate to even say it, but the silver lining with the pandemic where people are valuing tests more and seeing the importance of it, how important testing was and helping to look looking like we're getting close to an endemic sort of uh, sort of era with with covid. But we talked a little bit about kind of the flip side, the downside um, that could be coming up, and that's lab developed tests. So can you talk a little bit about how regular, you know, on the, on the one hand, more people are valuing it. They're really important. Tests were really important at, at, of all types. Uh, but now, but now how lab developed tests have kind of gotten on the radar of regulators and others. Uh, and this may cause just as we're, just as labs are being valued uh, at, at, at a better, at a better level or more not taken for granted, I guess. Uh, that now we might have some regulation coming in that could kind of derail derail some of their at least hamstring labs and some of the advancements they've made in in diagnostic technology. Right. No, you're you're exactly right, Chris. So 
One of the wonderful things about CLIA laboratories is that they are allowed to develop novel kinds of tests on their own. And basically, we call these laboratory developed tests or LDTs. And um, they really have traditionally fallen under the purview of CLIA. And it's they're they're regulated. You have to go through all of the uh, various kinds of analyses and do the different kinds of um, testing to make sure that they're of high quality, reproducible, and so forth. Um, But this has really been something that if you look at the tests in general, most tests that are out there, especially any kind of specialized kinds of tests, especially the molecular tests, almost all of these are LDTs. They're not FDA cleared. So the FDA cleared tests are for the most part the really common routine kinds of tests that are often run, you know, the CBCs, the chem panels, things like that. But when you start to get into more advanced kinds of things, dealing with infectious disease or immunology or cancer, these are the kinds of things where LDTs become really, really important. And one of the big examples, I was fortunate enough to get into the lab industry in the early 90s. And um, one of the things that we saw then was kind of the similar to not on, on as big a scale um, as as COVID, but there was the HIV pandemic. And right. um, that was something that everyone, nobody really knew what to do. And it was very, it, it was, it was terrible because you had people dying. It, it really wasn't clear at the beginning, sort of what was even the cause. And then how do you treat this? And as we went through that, the laboratories really became absolutely critical in helping to identify what was going on with with HIV and then coming up with brilliant new paradigms for how to really uh, measure and ultimately allowed for the the successful treatment of these patients. So out of this, I remember um, because of the LDTs that, that we developed, I was at specialty laboratories and we were one of the first laboratories to develop a lot of the HIV assays. And of course, these were all LDTs. Um, but out of that came things like the concept of viral load testing, where we could actually right. measure the amount of virus at very low levels. That was really probably the first time that the idea of a viral load was, was became sort of uh, in the vernacular. Um, genotyping, where we could actually measure mutations in the virus that made the virus um, uh, less susceptible to the treatments that were coming out. And that was critically important to evaluate these patients to to get a baseline viral load um, before they started treatment. As they went on treatment, if we started to see um, that the viral load was increasing, we could run genotyping tests to determine whether or not mutations were developing so that the the drugs that they were on were no longer going to be efficient or be um, uh, 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 useful. And so... um, and other drugs could then be developed. Phenotyping also was another um, test that came out of this as well, where you could actually grow the virus in, 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 in culture and you could start to see different the effect of different drugs and things. So all of these different paradigms came out of the fact that you had independent laboratories developing these LDTs. And um, eventually these LDTs 
um, as they as we sort of as laboratories go through and do the heavy lifting, eventually the larger diagnostic companies will come in and and then transition those off into FDA cleared kinds of assays. But I think it's it's really important to remember that so much of the innovation really comes from small independent laboratories that often are formed because they have a discovery that they've made either through um, various innovations um, at universities or through um, different discoveries that they have, have come up other ways and have decided, hey, I want to bring these discoveries to the world. And so they actually develop a CLIA laboratory to offer these types of tests. And this has been a, a paradigm that's been going on for years, um, even, even um, uh, countries outside the United States that have technologies and um, innovations that they want to develop in the U.S. and offer uh, will acquire different laboratories and then start to offer it that way. And the same thing for um, with with COVID, you know, these tests were all initially, for the most part, LDTs, and they had to go right. through emergency use authorization. Um, but that's how so many of these were developed very quickly and then emergency use authorization granted. And so now you had laboratories around the country that could handle the 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 volume, the the accuracy um, and this and the speed that was really needed to to address these kinds of problems. So as as FDA starts to continues and this has been going on for about 30 years, the FDA has right. really been looking continuously looking at whether or not how much to regulate LDTs and um, and so it is a double-edged sword, as, as you mentioned. It's sort of as we get more and more of these innovations and as we develop artificial intelligence and different kinds of algorithms that help us to, to look at better patterns and things, that also is something that they are concerned with because at the end of the day, they want something that's going to be safe, uh, safe for the first and foremost, and then also effective. And so the less obvious an assay is to a clinician in terms of, well, how does that, how is that result um, arrived at? Um, the more the FDA feels they, they want to, to get involved and they may need to get involved. And there's, right. a, there's kind of that balance between what's the risk to patient uh, health and um, versus, um, you know, the innovation. And so there is this kind of, kind of balance. And so, um, but I think it's, it is very important to continue to have the innovation, to um, not have as much regulation and, and to keep it at a minimum. And I think there's also responsibility on the lab industry as, as a whole that we have for ourselves to, to really make sure that we continue to have high quality, that we hold ourselves to this kind of quality and service um, and innovation and in that we do police ourselves and make sure that we do a good job. And I think that's really where competition comes in. And I think mm -hmm. is a really good thing too, because the more competition you have, the more it's going to make sure that we have the high, highest quality testing, that we have really good service and that we continue to innovate in a way that really positively impacts patient care. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that, and and then I, I want to move uh, move on to what labs can do to help with their reimbursement uh, streams. So certainly, 
LDTs, uh, the one one of the things that it, cre it creates a bigger menu that you can choose from that you can get reimbursed for more tests, whether you're a small lab or a big one of the big one of the big labs or a hospital lab. Um, let's talk a little bit about reimbursement and access. I think that you know that's kind of underlying that Lancet article that we we've alluded to a few times. Um, there was that uh, study was probably more i think looking more at at uh, develop the, the developing world but i think uh it's fair to say that even uh you know in in you know in a, in a first world country like ours uh and, and particularly in a profit um focused uh healthcare system uh that there are people who fall through the cracks or, or you, you have different qualities of of health ins health insurance or access uh, depending on where you live or, or what kind of job you do, et cetera. Um, how are some of the reimbursement difficulties? You know, certainly one of the nice things with, with COVID, uh, tests were free. I, I took a few tests that, at labs and I didn't have to pay for it. I got certainly, you know, got all got our vaccines for free. Um, that helped. Uh, I think that helped uh, with access for sure. Um, but looking now as we're getting back more into normal times as it were uh how is reimbursement how are maybe some of the challenges what are some of the challenges of reimbursement facing labs today and how could those potentially affect access which also can affect you know not only how many people you help but the number of tests that you can do the number of tests that can be reimbursed either out of pocket or mm -hmm. um, more generally out of out of insurance so so what's that and then um and then what what do labs do about it how do labs make sure that they're getting that yeah. the correct reimbursement uh maybe some tips that that you know from from your years of, of working in the field and and uh and maybe just some practical ideas uh, that some of, some of the lab uh, managers uh, listening uh, here can maybe uh, implement. Sure. No, I think, um, and, and it's interesting because one of the biggest uh, pieces of legislation that labs are facing now is the PAMA Act, um, Protecting Access to Medicare Act. And so it's, right. it's interesting. You made, you made the... the um, the, the point about access. And I think, ironically, PAMA, which was passed with the idea that they were trying to align Medicare rates of, of reimbursement to private payers with the idea that this should, should actually increase access for more patients to get um, coverage and so forth, um, I think is actually going to have the opposite effect. So mm -hmm. basically, PAMA, the idea is that um, they have proposed a 75% cut to reimbursement over a six-year period. And so wow. this started in 2018, 10% the first year, 10% the next year, 10% the next year. In 2021, they, they did not cut any. Um, but now the next few years, it's going to be a 15% cut for the next three years. So ultimately, that's a 75% reduction in reimbursement. And I think this is where sort of the whole idea of, of perception is so important. If, if you uh, have the premise that, oh, laboratory tests are very automated, they don't cost much, therefore, why should they be reimbursed at 
at X amount of, uh, at a certain level, um, then it's easy to sort of say, well, we'll just, we'll just cut that because it's, these tests aren't of that much value. They're really cheap to run. They don't cost a whole lot. Why should we be spending all this money on them? And that's really just, it, the reality is, is very much opposite to that. Um, so the, the problem with, with PAMA, and there's a lot of, uh, th- there's been so much discussion and so much action around this. Um, and a lot of groups have, have gotten involved in terms of lobbying uh, Congress to postpone and to, to um, try to change some of the, um, uh, the, the, the rules around this. And it's been very complicated and very messy um, because it is so important. Um, the problem is if you, first of all, a lot of laboratory tests, the margins are not that high. Sometimes they can be pretty good. Other times the margins are not that good. And so you also have to look at the, the size of the laboratory, the volume of the testing and so forth. So for the really large labs, they can purchase, they have a much higher um, uh, purchasing power than do the smaller labs because they're right. ordering, they can order in bulk, they can order um, uh, at, a, at a much lower price. And now with increasing supply chain issues, increasing fuel costs, um, unfortunately, thing, it's just exacerbating the problem. So right. what I'm always afraid of is that the when you start to cut the reimbursement, it really hits the smaller independent labs much harder than the larger laboratories. And so what you end up having is that a lot of these smaller labs aren't able to survive. And right. so, or feel like they just can't compete and therefore they put their lab up on the market. And so you have continued consolidation. And so, and that's a problem too, because as I mentioned, I mean, it's good to have the competition. It's, it, it's, it's, you always want to have choice and you always want to have, feel like you have to be doing continuously improving and doing a better job because you have this competition and without competition, you lose a lot of that. And so right. that is a, that's something that's really critical, um, is to make sure that, uh, uh, we try to reduce the effects of PAMA as much as possible. Some of the other things that are um, are happening is that there are more and more prior authorizations being required, mainly for the genetic testing and a lot of the complex molecular testing. And this puts a huge burden, um, not only on the laboratories, but it also on the patients and, and their physicians. It's a lot of effort that the physicians have to go to, through to get the prior authorization for the patient. Um, often genetic counselors need to be involved in this. And so ultimately, it ends up being a very complicated process that involves multiple clinicians. Um, ultimately, the, the patients have to, and their families often have to wait. Things get denied. They don't get the prior authorization. They may get stuck with bills if it wasn't uh, authorized properly. So that creates a lot of problems around something where they obviously want to do the testing for a reason. And and a lot of these tests are really, really critical, um, whether it be for different genetic, rare genetic conditions, um, cancer. It can be a lot of different reasons that they want to do these tests. The other thing that's happening is um, denials for uh, claims are increasing. Um, there have been 
a number of different studies um, published talking about the rates of denial. Um, but in between 2017 and 2020, um, the rates of denial increased um, 11%. Um, so there is a, um, uh, a real move toward increasingly having denied, having claims uh, no longer basically denied. And so right. a lot of the reasons for these, I mean, um, Zyphon, one of the, 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 the largest um, billing companies for laboratories, um, they, they had a publication recently where they saw uh, average denial rates, uh, 15% for in-network claims and 30% for out-of-network claims. That's a wow. huge number of claims. So if you think about all of the testing that's being done, if you have 15% of in-network claims being denied, that's, that's a lot of revenue that, that is not, that, that you either, if you don't do anything about it, you're going to lose, um, or to even just to chase that down, there's a lot of cost to that. And so a lot of the reasons for denial, things like uh, that the tests are deemed experimental, uh, performed without prior authorization, as we right. mentioned, uh, medically unnecessary, they're not covered by the specific insurance, uh, insurance plan. Um, so they're missing information, missing documentation. So it's, it's really gets complicated and it can really bog a laboratory down trying to get their hands around what's happening with these different kinds of, of denials. Right. And so, um, you know, it's something that really needs to be, to be addressed and that the laboratories really need to be focusing on, uh, intensely. Right. So what do they do? I mean, what are, what are some of the, what are some of the, you know, what, what would you advise a, a lab manager or a pathologist, uh, or even a primary uh, physician who's ordering the test, what would you advise them uh, to do to help maximize reimbursement for everything from some of the more routine tests to some of these more, uh, I guess, exotic tests or, or, or cutting edge tests that you're talking about, uh, sure. you were just talking about? Yeah. Well, I think, I think really the, the first and foremost, I think the most important thing is that the the whole revenue cycle management needs to be a top priority with with every laboratory and really needs to be an integral part of their whole strategy i think it for many years it was the idea that if you have this innovation this innovative idea you build a test uh, it's an ldt you bill out the cpt codes for it and you and you get reimbursed and and for a long time that's how things worked Clearly now, that's not how things are working. Right. Um, the the payers um, are just are much more savvy. They're getting and and you can look at it from their perspective too. As as you start to have more and more tests that are out there, um, they're trying to figure out okay, which which ones clearly are bringing value to the lives that they're covering, and you know which ones are necessary, which ones may not be. There's only so much money to go around. And this is this is something that as a society we have to, to really understand and deal with. But I right. think from the lab perspective, you it, it, this has to be part of your whole strategy. Right from the beginning, you need to be thinking about how am I going to get paid for everything that I'm doing? Um, I think secondly, as part of that, you really need to have dedicated resources to do this whether right. it be an individual 
that is um, a payer relations person, uh, revenue cycle management, VP. Uh, it can be an individual or a team. Um, and you may want to get outside help um, through consultants or different companies that can actually um, help to do this. But clearly, it has to be something that's not only your strategy, but you actually have to have the resources to invest in it. Because if you're going through the whole spending all of this time, effort and money to get the spent to to do the marketing, to get the sales, to have the the patients uh, specimens drawn, to come into the lab, to process it, to go through, get the result out and then you bill and then you don't get paid. Um, you can't stay in business. And so right. it be, it's becoming so complicated that you really do need to have experts who understand how to deal with um, information up at the, initially. So for instance, with the claims, making sure that all of the information is there and it is correct before you submit the claim. Having things in the system, even automated features that will identify and flag any kind of patterns that may be with a particular payer, you would know, right. hey, this, this will is going to be flagged as a, as a denial. Let's go back. Let's revise this. Let's get this other information correct or get some more documentation that we know is going to be needed. Um, having uh, individuals that have good relationships with the payers so that you can negotiate right. better contracts. Um, having individuals that, that can actually talk to um, medical staff. Uh, at the payers to explain why your particular assay is really critical for patient care and how it may help to save the system money. So, right. you know, having a, a, a uh, individual or team that is very savvy at doing this, I think is going to be really, really critical. And then I think third, thirdly, really, and, and I think this is sort of gets back to sort of from the beginning, what we were talking about perception, I think as an industry, we really need to come together um, and to, to lobby the government um, on the critical value that we bring to healthcare and really the cost effectiveness of what we do, um, where we can hopefully change the perception of lab testing so that we're viewed as extremely critical and valuable to healthcare um, and worth paying a premium for. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, treating, I mean, you brought up a, a couple of really great points, you know, tr treating the lab as a business. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the reality that we, again, that's the system we're in is, is a, both helping people and it's a business. So you have to have to uh, treat it that way. And, and also having that, those medical, you know, those medical experts on staff uh, or that who can speak with the payer, I think also developing that, relationship with the payer uh, or payers, uh, whether they're private or a private payer or, or they're a government payer to really explain why this is so, why this is so important to your point, why this is so important and medically necessary. And uh, because you're right, I think, you know, I don't want to talk a lot about Theranos, uh, but I think I wouldn't be surprised if we could trace some of the, the points you were talking about earlier back to those, uh, some of those bad actors who, who, who really took advantage of the system and took advantage of LDTs. And, and if, if I've been watching the, the Hulu show, I don't want to turn this into a, a television review, but I've been watching the, uh, the, the dropout on Hulu and uh, the, 
most previous the previous episode really got into uh how they were taking advantage of ldt the ldt system and and uh it was pretty it's pretty interesting uh so i think that uh, i think that there's there's a lot of a lot of points here and and i think we could we could talk about this i think for a few more hours uh and unfortunately, uh, and maybe we should just revisit it in the near future. Once you know, I know there's some legislation uh, coming on board with uh, LDTs and and some of the other uh, legislation that you've been talking about. Uh, but unfortunately, we've run out of time for today. So, Ron, I want to thank you for your time, and uh, I think you've given our listeners some really good uh, good practical background and advice about. Uh, meeting the laboratory reimbursement challenge. I think we talked a lot about uh, access and 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 uh, you know innovation and and how to uh, how to maybe work with your payers to to make sure that you maximize your reimbursement. So I think we have uh, some really good food for thought. And, and again, I, I hope you'll come back maybe in the future. We'll talk about this uh, this or another topic uh, sometime soon. I think you're right. I mean, there there are so many interesting topics, and it's. Um there's so many connections to so many other things that are going on in, 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 in the world with lab testing and, and a lot of different opportunities to explore these things. I think that could be very um, thought provoking and, and opportunities to see where we can make some changes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and I also want to thank everybody for listening today. So thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedules. Uh, look for more episodes of Clinical Lab Chat in the future. And please visit us online at clpmag.com and on all of the major social media platforms. And until next time. 